0: Donald Trump's ban from Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, among others, has put private media groups under the spotlight. It has sparked questions about the power they hold over the public and the line between freedom of speech and censorship in the public interest.
1: Meanwhile, in the UK, Talk Radio's brief ban from YouTube made more headlines around social media's regulation and how big tech companies are behaving in the pandemic.
0: Today, we will look at those issues and suggest the implications for the big media companies going forwards. To help us with that, we'll be chatting to Professor Charlie Beckett from the London School of Economics for his insight into recent events.
1: For the first time in 2021, I'm John Hewman.
0: And I'm Ellen Boxall. Welcome to Not Your Normal Finance Show. Well, welcome back after a, a prolonged Christmas break from, from the podcast. I think uh, I think we all had to take a little time to settle into lockdown Lockdown number three and, and get going again with the podcast. But yeah, we're back hopefully now for the duration and lots to talk about this year. Starting with the news, which is capturing headlines all over the place because it, it affects so many people. Everyone has an opinion on it. The, the banning of Donald Trump from, from many social media sites and what this means for social media going forward. To help us out, we're we're joined by Lauren Almeida again, who's our expert on all things well, all things modern, really, I suppose it is. All, all, all things modern,
1: yeah. like computer games yeah. <laughs> and social media.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's not the extent of Lauren's skills, but that, <laughs> that is uh, where she helps us out. Um, so thanks for joining us again, Lauren. To start us off, producer John has set us some questions, which... I think we'll just take it in turns to answer because I think they're very good questions and, uh, and it'll be good to, to see where we're all at. So question number one, Lauren, you can kick us off. Did the seven plus platforms that banned Donald Trump do the right thing?
2: So, a big question to start off with, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I suppose in one sense, it's a, it's a bit, it's almost like too little too late, right? Like the riots in Capitol Hill have already happened Um, I mean, the the images that were coming out of Washington were really shocking a couple of weeks ago, people um, storming what was meant to be the symbol of American democracy. Um, And the communities that organise that, whether you want to describe them as kind of alt-right or kind of fanatic Trump supporters, they've already formed those communities on Facebook and on Twitter and wherever else. So, um, yeah, in that sense, they've not done enough to address these issues. um, And they've not done enough to potentially restrict what Trump was saying in the first place. But equally, you could argue that banning Trump, I mean, some some people might say it was the right thing to do, um, but others will say, well, you censored the supposed leader of the free world. Um, what are you going to do next? You have too much power. Um, so in that sense, they've opened up themselves to a huge tidal wave of issues by essentially saying that they're now publishers and that they're going to have editorial policy about kind of what's on their platform what's allowed to be said
0: mm, yeah absolutely i think that's a that's definitely something that they uh they may be i mean they must have seen this these issues these questions now coming down the road but but yeah banning trump was uh, has seems to have been the catalyst john yes or no ban trump from twitter etc
1: No, I think it's really daft. I agree with most of, uh, well, in fact, all of what what Lauren said. Uh, I I think, you know, these are, uh, he's a divisive character, but he does have an enormous following. I think he had something in excess of 80 million Twitter followers and, you know, a lot of people in the US voted for him. Um, and those people are going to be very angry that he is banned from those, those platforms. Um, it, it's hardly healing the division that we've seen in the United States. And it's not as though it's going to silence those groups anyway, because they will find somewhere else to go. And, and, and indeed, they did. They'd all gone to another platform called Parler, which also then found itself essentially banned by, by various large tech companies. But now that's gone somewhere else. It's, it's apparently set up, set up shop on Russian servers. So, so it's really failed. It will fail banning Trump in respect of everything that it's trying to do?
0: Unless what it's trying to do is placate the incoming president, Joe Biden, who who is maybe... I don't even know if he's on Twitter, but he's <laughs> he's definitely less active. Um,
1: but that is interesting, though. And I think Lauren, you, you, uh, in fact, both of you. I think when you were doing the U.S. election series that we ran in the magazine, you did, we did a big piece on political funding. And you know, the, the Democratic Party and big tech are close. Mm, there absolutely. is no doubt about it. Yeah,
0: and maybe in waiting until this point, which I mean, I agree with Lauren. I think this is way too late. If if, if the uh, if the censorship of these kind of views is a, is the role of the social media companies they should have done this years ago, but they 've waited until donald trump 's final few weeks in office when really it 's not going to have a particularly big impact on on the companies themselves profitability because Trump, as of tomorrow or today if you 're listening to this tomorrow is is history he 's a, he's a part of American history, not a, not a part of american present and Joe Biden is the man in charge, so so silencing Donald Trump, this is a big gesture, but really it doesn't mean an awful lot in terms of what, what people are picking up on Twitter, but it may mean an awful lot in terms of Twitter and Google and Facebook having a having a shoe in. Yeah,
1: but they, they may be sort of pleasing uh, their their Democrat paymasters. But Lauren, you alluded to it. You know, this this potentially shows the world how how powerful they actually are, um, and it shows the shows the world that they're acting as publishers, as you as you said, which you know they had claimed not to be before. It changes the regulatory lens through through which we potentially look at them, and that's potentially very bad news for investors.
0: Well this leads us on to question two. So Lauren you can kick us off with this one as well. Should social media be self regulated or does it need an external body?
2: Well I think I think the events of the past couple of weeks show that it does need an external body because it can't regulate itself. It's not done a good enough job. Um Facebook has had like loads of of people trying to monitor and get a grip on all of the Let's say unsavory content on their platform and the same for Twitter and it's just not been successful. And it also means that both of those platforms have been used by domestic terrorists to, 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 organize in Washington. So, um, I think it's kind of impossible to have, even, even if it's not, even if it's not social media regulating themselves, like it's kind of impossible to have an independent regulatory body that can get its arms across all of the internet like how do you control what people say on the internet is essentially the problem here like even if even if facebook and twitter have their own rules if they weren't so big and so massive and there was there was actually proper competition um even there you would have issues with with people um yeah posting really kind of horrible stuff quite frequently
1: it's it's a tricky one and i think you're right the internet is such a big old thing that that you know getting getting into every corner of it, seeing what's happening in every corner of the internet uh, as a regulator, is it's impossible. It's, a, it's definitely, definitely way beyond any sort of regulatory framework, body that we, we have today. Um, but, but then, you know, what is the internet? If you, you know, go back 20, 30 years when, when this thing was in its infancy, it was supposed to be the place where you could say anything you liked. It was supposed to be the place where you know where where the free exchange of ideas would take place, um, and and you know the companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook were champions of that. You know they, they, these were they were anti-censor companies, and now they're censors. It's 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 gone wrong.
0: Well, it, exactly, which which seems to lead to the answer to that question being: social media should be self-regulated. It shouldn't be. An external regulator which is in charge of regulating what is said on the internet and the change needs to come in in education in in what these platforms are actually for in in what people read from these platforms that the the amount of data and the amount of information out there now is beyond the realm of regulation it is too big to regulate so in order to actually safeguard people from the dangers of social media, which we can see all over the place, um, including in a uh, recent the recent Netflix documentary about called the Social Dilemma, which some of the stats are just horrifying, it it should be potentially individuals' responsibility to protect their children, protect vulnerable people from the dangers of social media, and and that comes from better education rather than tighter regulation, perhaps.
2: From an investor perspective, it's more appealing if a platform does have proper regulation that works effectively. Because you don't want your adverts coming up next to like Nazi propaganda on Facebook. That's not something. It's hard to sell that space, um, and it's not it's not great for the business. So, in that sense, it could be that. It might be worth arguing that the most PC platforms make for the best investments. It's a big statement, but it could be true.
1: But don't people like, as you've uh, been discussing in your, your magazine column, uh, your magazine article that's coming out in this week's issue, people like controversial content. This, this stuff sells. People, people like a, a good old scrap on the internet or, or something unsavoury.
2: They do, they do. I think con- controversial content is great for engagement because, it, because, as I explained in that article, it kind of triggers an emotional response and then gets people writing about it and sharing it. But equally, content that is kind, of, kind of sedates the viewer is more popular usually than controversial content. Like Of the most followed pages on Facebook, I think only around three or four are actually related to current affairs and a couple of them are Chinese. So they're completely like, disconnected from whatever just happened in Washington. Most people, well, not most people, but I think more people um, than maybe some people assume are not that interested in politics and just want to watch soap cutting videos and ASMR videos and cat videos on the internet and not actually fussed about political forums on Reddit. So, yeah, I suppose in that sense, again, I think kind of mind-nubbing content is more investor-friendly than controversial content.
0: Which, which begs the question, I suppose, what, what is the platform for? If it's for selling advertising, then yeah, then, yeah, the mind-numbing content is the stuff that is more important, more valuable but if it is for broadcasting content and ideas, which it seems to be doing more of, even though, as you say, the volume of content and what attracts the biggest number of users is the is the mind-numbing content, but the volume of content which is capturing headlines is the controversial stuff. If that's the purpose of social media, then then yeah, maybe it does need some form of regulation. That suggests it's a broadcaster rather than a a platform for for advertising or anything else.
1: Indeed. I mean, Lauren, you mentioned, and Megan, you've just mentioned advertising. We know that, that Google, for example, um, runs advertising through its, its sponsored uh, searches, uh, sponsored links, for um, financial scams. Um, and and, a, and I have a very active campaigner in the UK, a guy called Mark Tabor. It's, it's been on at them to, and, and the FCA, the, the financial regulator in, in the city, to do something about this. And Google refused. You know they, 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 you know, they say we, we're not there to, spot, to, to send some advertising either. So, so you know, I, I, I feel that the social media industry has got to a point where they want to have their cake and eat it. Uh, and, and I don't think that's sustainable.
0: Um, no, it, it's almost certainly not. And the regulators, especially on the big company side, are certainly circulating. But if we're talking about regulators on the media side, then they're a little bit further off the pace. And that leads to the final question. Are the regulators of the mainstream media getting it right? What do you think, Lauren?
2: Again, it's a, it's a difficult question because it's almost—it's kind of the same—the same issue. It's how do you get your arms around broadcast media and online media? And you certainly can't treat them like they're the same thing. Um, even, but even like uh, this is kind of doubling back to an earlier question, but with Trump, people claiming that Trump has been censored. He hasn't really been censored. He still has access to the presidential pulpit and he can ring up Fox News whenever he wants. Um, And that's the most viewed news network in in America. So, yeah, it's it's kind of, you can't, just because you regulate one form of media, i.e. online, doesn't mean that you can regulate the other one effectively and vice versa.
0: I think I know your answer to this question.
1: I'm I'm not a big fan of Ofcom. (laughs) 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 Um, um, You know, with specific reference to the UK, uh, some of some of the uh, particularly around uh, reporting of the coronavirus pandemic, some of the Ofcom guidelines I have found to be extremely strange indeed, and I and I find myself watching telly without any real view of what's going on, feeling that. That the the way that media, mainstream media regulation is working, is that I'm not being told stuff.
0: Mm, Yeah, I I, I would agree with you on that one. I think in the US as well, the regulation around mainstream media is is questionable to say the very least. So, if the regulators, if the media regulators are going to start looking at the social media platforms in the same way as they're looking at the mainstream media, I don't think that's really going to help very much.
1: It's all very difficult. I mean, you know, just my my sort of thousand foot, you know, personal view of everything. Is I don't. I'm not. I don't like censorship. I really don't. I think. I think. You know, censorship never got us anywhere. I mean, there are people who who say things that, that are appalling, um, and probably they shouldn't say it. But society will will out to them as it were. But, but but you know, give someone the opportunity to say that and, and let society do that. You know, I, th- I think that's important. Which is
0: why education is, and filling the gap in people's knowledge is potentially more important than regulation is.
1: Yeah, also teaching, teaching people how to interpret what's on social media, how to use various media mm-hmm. platforms, how to understand the, the biases that are inherent in in personal views on social media or mainstream media, uh, news reporting. Um, the, the article you mentioned is, is all about the protection of children on social media platforms. And I, I, yeah, Maybe that's a place to start mm. and, and, and educating the youngest, most vulnerable people about ha- how to actually work with these platforms.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a subject which evokes powerful emotions on, on all sides. Um, most people, regardless of their level of subject matter, have, do have a view on Trump and on Twitter. But to get an expert view on this, uh, on this subject, our producer, John Rogers, has spoken to Professor Charlie Beckett from the London School of Economics. He's the founding director of POLIS, which is an international journalism think tank for the university, and he led the commission Truth, Trust and Technology in 2018, which is looking at ideas around regulation of information and the media. We began by asking him what his initial reaction was to the Trump ban.
3: Well, I think, like... Many people. It was both, in a sense, a positive move because uh, there was he was clearly a spreader of misinformation and uh, extremist uh, content on that platform. But I was also, like many people, very concerned at the sort of arbitrary, ad hoc nature of it. That it seems that the uh, social networks and indeed people who are their critics, are being very reactive. Um, We see a problem and demand that something must be done. And if it's convenient for the uh, tech companies, uh, if it's in their interests, or if they're pushed hard enough, they will then take action. So it doesn't feel very well uh, thought out. And there doesn't seem to be a sort of structural approach to dealing with the specific problems that are obviously arising.
4: Yeah, so it's interesting. Do you think then this potentially wouldn't have happened if it wasn't the case that perhaps you know Joe Biden's going to win the election, the Democrats are going to be you know take over uh, power in the U.S.? I mean, is that if, sort of you, what we can you, read you, into this?
3: It's partly that, of course. There's a sort of short-term political uh, context for it. But even if you go back to you know when when, when people in the West or in, when people in America. Started worrying about misinformation. It was around the election of Donald Trump. And I often wonder what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had won. Would people be so concerned? And it's very much in a US driven agenda here that we've had populists spreading propaganda, uh, people uh, trying to manipulate or even censor the internet in other countries. Uh, but it only really becomes a matter of urgency because, of course, these are American companies largely um, it only becomes a matter of kind of policy urgency um, when it happens at a very high profile mainly in america and i don't think that's very healthy when you think of the the incredible impact that all these networks have around the world and so you know we're seeing which is interesting we're seeing a variety of responses in the european union you know certain countries in the eu itself Uh, is adopting a slightly more coherent uh, approach but it's still kind of iterative it's reactive and that's partly i think because it's an incredibly uh, difficult set of issues to tackle
4: yeah it seems like regulation for social media kind of like, well it's, it lags behind or it's non-existent um in some cases there's a lot of self-regulation do you think what do you think is a better system um do governments need to get involved with regulating these big social media companies
3: i mean in our commission in 2018 we had a very clear principle that of course uh, you can regulate these platforms they're like any other entity any other Company or institution can be subject to law or regulation or rules, um, but they are different, and we don't have the kind of regulatory principles or certainly not the regulatory institutions in place that can deal with these organisations because they are they are not just like um, publishers. Anybody who says there's a simple solution, which is break them up or treat them like newspapers or treat them like broadcasters just doesn't understand uh, the scale and nature uh, and the differences between these uh, different social networks. So um, I don't have a simple off-the-shelf solution. We suggested that we, first of all, need to know a lot more about what is actually happening on these networks. They don't even seem to know what's happening uh, on their platforms, and they're not very transparent about telling us, let alone allowing some kind of accountability. So I think that a solution might be a kind of intermediary body. We suggested a kind of um, independent platform agency that would, first of all, have access to what's happening on those networks and be able to monitor um, what they're doing. And of course, they are already subject to some kind of regulatory oversight. They have to, they're not allowed to break the law in particular countries, for example. Um, and they uh, have to respond to uh, the usual accountability mechanisms. That's why you saw Mark Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill and other people that you know in front of House of Commons select committees. So I think that the, it, these networks are also changing. You know, uh, ten years ago we all thought Facebook was marvelous because it helped fuel protests during the Arab Spring. We're now very worried because um, Facebook and the other networks also helped. the protests or the insurrection that we saw uh, on Capitol Hill just recently. Um, So getting the balance right is incredibly difficult anyway, Um, but especially because these networks are constantly evolving. Literally, day by day, their algorithms are tweaked and adjusted. So how do you uh, regulate that? How do you Understand what's happening, and then how do you decide what they should and shouldn't do? These are very much a special case, and uh, that's not to say that nothing should be done. I don't think uh, laissez faire is an option here, uh, but anybody who tells you that there's a simple solution really doesn't understand what's happening.
4: Is there also an issue of um, maybe a monopoly uh, on free speech held by the likes of? Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of Twitter in particular. I mean, I heard that Parlour had been sort of shut down off the back of this, and I have to admit, I'd never heard of Parlour, uh, but that seems, you know, like one alternative to Twitter um, that has now sort of been taken off the air. So I, I just wonder, is it is there an issue that too much... That, yeah, there's a, a, there's a monopoly, basically, in the hands of too few.
3: Uh, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it's... I think you can talk about... We used to talk about, you know, um, diversity of ownership in uh, the news media. Uh, And there was always a a balancing act that you didn't want one entity to have uh, dominance. Um, I don't think that any particular social network has a monopoly. You could argue that it has, um, you know, kind of dominance or great significance. You have to remember that the social networks are part of a media ecosystem. So one of the problems around uh, extreme speech is that uh, it doesn't just happen online. Uh, there are cable channels who are also rather vociferous, and mainstream media generally can often amplify uh, what's happening online. Uh, and if you try to, um, you know, break up uh, the 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 networking giants, well in a sense they are already doing that themselves they're devolving into instagram and whatsapp and uh, other uh, channels which are often more private more closed and even harder uh, to know what's going on and to regulate them and ultimately as we saw with parlor uh, if people don't feel that they can speak on a certain platform they often go off uh, to find their own which again will be more secretive more closed uh, so Um, I don't think it's a solution to just say, you know, um, break up the tech giants. Uh, I think that uh, in some senses, it's quite useful having quite dominant social networks because you know where they live and you can go along and ask them to behave. And I think that is partly the kind of negotiation that we're uh, seeing across the world right now.
0: It's not just political discussion which has been under the spotlight of the media regulators as you mentioned john here in the uk my politics is for now quite a lot calmer than it is in the us the big topic up for debate is coronavirus um so sparked i suppose by the banning of talk radio from youtube which only lasted for for half a day but but yeah it wasn't it wasn't ideal, the situation that that evolved there. Lauren, do you want to just talk us through what happened?
2: Yeah, so so the the, the talk radio channel was banned for, yeah, as you say, half a day um, because of a doctor's comments that we should let the pandemic spread um, after the, the lockdown announcement. And the host called it an, an injection of, of common sense. Um, but yeah, it's obviously questionable material. Um, but equally, you can make the argument that we should be able to have discussions about public health policies in a public forum Um, and especially given I mean you know whether or not you're a proponent of lockdown this government has not exactly made um, made itself look good over the past nine months or so Um, and we should be able to criticize that in a in a public way and yeah discussion of that certainly shouldn't be shouldn't be squashed
1: I agree, which is why I made my earlier comments about Ofcom. Um, We've got their guidelines here. What they say is that accuracy or material misleadingness in programmes in relation to the virus or public policy regarding it um, is banned, essentially, um, on on mainstream media. Now, I have a problem with that, because who's telling me what's right? And and what, what aspects of government public health policy... Are correct because it seems to be moving around all the time, and I don't really understand the basis upon which a lot of decisions have been made.
0: Absolutely, I completely agree. With you, but just in, in the interest of fairness, it wasn't actually Ofcom which took this um, this talk radio thing off YouTube. This was actually YouTube, which has really shot itself in the foot by doing this because YouTube says that in its rules that it doesn't allow content doesn't allow content about COVID nineteen that poses a serious risk of, e- of egregious harm which is a little ironic, given that YouTube is still hosting the video in which Donald Trump says this.
2: Right.
3: And
0: then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that Uh, by
3: injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it... There's a tremendous number, of logs, so it'll be interesting to check that.
0: But, yeah, Ofcom as well, absolutely, it's hard to deny, has been censoring conversation around coronavirus.
1: Yeah, I mean, t- so take, take this, this, uh, this doctor who said, you know, um, you should let the pandemic spread post-lockdown. Well, you know, that was, that was up for debate. That was actually government policy, if I remember rightly, at the beginning of this whole thing. This, was, this is the whole herd immunity uh, strategy. Um, you know, we, we had uh, the Barrington Declaration, which was made by a number of other scientists who... And
0: was taken off Google.
1: Was taken off Google. Uh, I've never really ever seen it talked about uh, in, in any mainstream uh, TV outlet. Um, we, we've we actually given them some space in the magazine. It was uh, We interviewed Dr. Sinatra Gupta. But, you know, why, why shouldn't we listen to her view? She's a scientist. As much as anybody on the, the government's advisory side of things are scientists as well, I want to hear both sides of the story.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. and And actually what... Uh, a lot of the articles that you do read in the mainstream media, which which cover the Great Barrington Declaration, are are hugely critical of what these scientists have done, and some of the terminology that they've used to describe the scientists is, I mean, it's disgusting considering that these are professionals who who have a a scientifically backed up view. On lockdown, and they're being spoken about as if they're they're monsters. Yeah, I, I think the issue with the talk radio thing was the fact that the journalist, that the host, had agreed with the doctor. They, he had said that this was an injection of common sense, um, not something that I don't necessarily disagree with myself. But and YouTube had said there was no challenging of the statement, no balance. But but there. There's plenty of balance elsewhere around the internet, but the internet has to be, has to have arguments on both sides, and the host in agreeing with a doctor, with a, a professional on whether or not we need to go back to the herd immunity thing, isn't something that should be silenced, and certainly not by YouTube.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole agreeing thing, I think, is quite interesting because, you know, something I haven't actually heard anyone talk about it uh, during the recent discussions about social media. Was, but it's this idea of echo chambers that that everyone sort of gravitates to the to the area, the forum, the whatever it is, the channel where where the where the people agree with them. Uh, and so you end up with these big bubbles of people agreeing with each other. Um, and, and actually people dis- disagreeing with each other is what makes things better. <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know not not necessarily you know full blown conflicts, but 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 actually you know debating and challenging and, and working towards better answers.
0: Absolutely, yeah. There's there's certainly no denying that. Um, maybe maybe the argument for now is keep everything calm, keep it all quiet, stick with the policy, don't stir things up. But what if that policy making is incorrect?
1: It might make things worse. Yeah. So it's a bit. Yeah. It, anyway, it's it's uh, it's it's really it's quite interesting. Yeah, as you can tell, I I sort of do feel quite strongly about this.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do I. And I think the uh, the more space we can give to the, the people who are being silenced by other areas <laughs> of the media, the better. A- anyone, all voices welcome at the Investors Chronicle. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah this does all tie into what the outlook is obviously we are an investment publication at heart not a, a political forum but we so tying it back to what this means for the big social media companies it, it does suggest that uh, that turbulence is coming down the road for for google for facebook for for twitter um Lauren, you pointed out in your article that Twitter has stopped even reporting how many users it has on its platform because they're not heading in the right direction. This doesn't make for a great investment case.
2: Yeah, no, it doesn't. I mean, Twitter is kind of a separate issue because Twitter's not. Twitter's got a chief executive who's not really paying close attention. Yeah, it's it's not great. It's not it's not been a great business for for a couple of years now. Um, But more widely on kind of Facebook and Twitter. other social media networks they for a long time they've kind of enjoyed legal freedoms because of laws back in the 90s that has made them basically not liable for any content that's published on their platforms by third parties um which has been great for them i mean that's that's kind of perfect but um there's been bipartisan support for those laws either being scrapped or reformed in some way and they do need to be changed i mean Yeah, like 30 years ago now the the internet's come so far Um, and they were designed to help those companies get bigger and I think most people would agree that they're big enough now. Um, Yeah, they they need to, I think they're they're starting to take baby steps in accepting whether or not they like it, that they're publishers Um, and now I think regulators need to kind of push them further along that that journey.
0: Mm. And meanwhile they have the, the antitrust arguments Floating around as well, uh, the fact that Google and Facebook have two largest antitrust cases in history that they they're going to have to fight probably <laughs> probably over the next decade but uh, but that doesn't really play into their uh, play in their favor at all if the, if the wider space, if the regulators are looking at anything to get their hands on if, uh, if, if antitrust laws are going to change as well. There's a, there's a lot of problems potentially for the companies which rely on...
2: Yeah, d- definitely. It's like if, if Twitter and Facebook weren't so big, the fact that Trump got kicked off them wouldn't be such an issue. I mean, at the core of it, it's because they've been allowed to get so massive and Facebook was allowed to buy Instagram and, and WhatsApp. Um, yeah, that the Twitter and or Facebook, neither of them should be equated with free speech because they shouldn't be the biggest platforms on the internet, but they are. Um, so, yeah, it's just opened up... Um, yeah, it's opened them up to scrutiny to to, anti, to antitrust regulators again. Mm. Um, so this doesn't this doesn't look good from from a competitive perspective.
1: They're also they're also just hypocrites. I mean, uh, when we go back to, to you know the, the November election, another piece you wrote about U.S. election spending on on social media platforms, they were quite Facebook was quite happy to take Donald Trump's money and and sell him advertising space. Quite happy to do it. So there, there is a huge degree of hypocrisy uh, at the heart of all this.
0: And this is without even mentioning TikTok, which has <laughs> all sorts of its own <laughs> issues to contend with. Uh, I was listening to a very interesting podcast about TikTok the other day, which was saying that, I mean, the amount of time and energy which has been spent on the regulation of TikTok because of these concerns about the fact that the Chinese may get hold of our data is really not significant at all considering how much data google and facebook have on all of us and twitter has the odd dance video and uh, sorry tiktok has the odd dance the odd dance video it's uh it's really not, a, not really a significant thing in the grand scheme of of data privacy and and big tech regulation
1: no but tiktok was yeah. easy to go after exactly yeah
2: um i suppose also the difference there is that with facebook and Apple and Google and whoever else, I don't think there's been much of a precedent with them sharing data with the state, whereas with Jack Ma and Alibaba um, and kind of in the world of of Chinese tech companies, which include TikTok, owned by ByteDance, um, there have been some reports that the Chinese government is is pushing Jack Ma to to share some of the consumer data that that his company has collected. So, yeah, there is perhaps more concern warranted over tiktok than there is over over google
0: yeah concern for a different reason which i suppose is something that maybe we should talk about another time because we've definitely run over the 15 minute slot allotted to us by our producer um sorry about that john um so we'll wrap it up but i think antitrust and tiktok and china are probably two two topics that we can explore in later podcasts so stay tuned.
1: We're going to be doing Bitcoin as well, aren't we, soon? Yep, Bitcoin. Bitcoin or crypto, which seems to be what uh, old J- Twitter Jack is more interested in than anything <laughs> these days. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why he's taking his of off the ball, but he's going to make all his money in Bitcoin. Mm,
1: along with everybody else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> A discussion for another week.